Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome to another edition of the Safina Society podcast. This is your host, Nazmul Hassan, and uh, this is going to be another solo podcast for this week. The topic we're going to be discussing today is the Kalam cosmological argument and also, you know, replying to some of some of the comments and the feedback we got from from the uh, the previous week's podcast. So so let's get into it. Before we can begin, I just want to take you back to very interesting year, 1927. Georges Lemaitre, a Belgian physicist, who also happened to be a Catholic priest, by the way, and Alexander Friedman, a Russian physicist, took the theoretical findings of Albert Einstein and produced a paper. And their discoveries, or rather their predictions, shook the ivory towers of physics to its core. Uh, They made, or rather their discoveries, made physicists extremely anxious. Einstein had discovered that gravity was not some invisible force or spooky action at a distance, as Isaac Newton had thought, but it was actually a property of space itself. There was no such thing as empty space, and, you know, things moving around in a vacuum. Rather, space was as real a thing as your skin. It could stretch, contract, warp, ripple. And taking this radical idea uh, and applying it to cosmology, Lemaitre and Friedman proposed that the universe is actually constantly expanding, similar to a balloon that you're, you're blowing uh, up constantly, and, and the, 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 the skin of the balloon is constantly expanding as more and more air is put into the balloon. Now, what seems like a tame idea, and what seems like an idea that everybody holds nowadays, okay, was not a tame idea when it first came out. If the universe was indeed expanding, and, and here's, the, here's the radical part, if you wound the clock back in time, the distances between the objects of the universe get smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, uh, you're sort of shrinking back the universe. You're sort of watching the universe contract, okay? And, And the distances between the objects get so small that they become virtually zero, okay? They become virtually zero, and the, and, and it sort of coalesces into this infinitely small point called a cosmic singularity. This was the description of the beginning of the universe that the standard model provided. Okay, the standard model is what the the the, the findings, the the theoretical model of Friedman and and Lemaitre was called. And what it proposed was something radical. It said that the universe had a beginning. That all of time, space, matter, energy. All the fundamental forces, all of the billions and trillions of galaxies that we see, all of the billions and trillions of stars that we see, everything of reality came into being ex nihilo, out of nothing. All of existence was gathered at the very beginning of the universe in this infinitely small point, and through a big bang, as Fred Hoyle would later call it, uh, rapidly expanded into the the uh, universe we know today. And 
This was a disturbing conclusion for the physicists of the time. Because a finite universe dwells in possibility, and the age-old question of why is there something rather than nothing is again thrust into our faces. For much of the 19th and 20th century, materialism was the religion of the intellectuals. There was nothing outside of material reality. Everything outside of human consciousness was a, an inert machine, right? You know, people even thought that if you could cut up a human being, okay, and, and you stitched them, uh, stitched, uh, you know, all the parts back together in exactly the perfect way, uh, you could give life back to the dead. But today we find that idea absurd, but this was the, the thinking uh, during, the the, during the age of materialism. For those scientists, the universe was a huge machine, working by itself in the absence of any type of personal god. This was Voltaire's god, a deistic god, a distant first cause. All that was worth knowing was physical. All that was worth knowing was how to make things more efficient, like the machinery of the universe. The universe was thought to be eternal, always existing. It just was. What's interesting is that this era was saturated also with brutality and colonialism. And the end of this era ended with the biggest disaster that could ever fall on human beings in history. World War II. You know, I'm not a historian or anything, but I don't, I don't think that that is a coincidence. The materialistic mindset devoids us of all that is human. Anyway, the mechanical reductionist establishment was shook and dismantled by Einstein, quantum mechanics, and the new developments in cosmology, especially the standard model, which said that the universe had a beginning. So, you know, we wanted to give a detailed analysis of the Kalam cosmological argument, and we also wanted to give a, a, a little bit more detail, a little bit more meat into some of the topics we brought up uh, on last week's podcast, uh, the problem of evil, the omnipotence paradox, and so on. So, uh, you know, that's, that's why we wanted to do this uh, solo podcast, which is a little bit more in-depth and uh, might be appreciated by a larger group of people. So, let's get into it. Uh, I'm going to be assuming you have already some basic knowledge of mathematics, nothing over high school math, uh, some basic knowledge of logic, okay? Um, obviously, if, uh, if you want sort of a basic review of logic, what propositions mean, what, 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 uh, what an argument is, what deductive, inductive arguments are, watch last week's podcast. I think the team does a good job in sort of um, giving a very broad overview of what logic is and why we need it. So, before I get into it, I'll, I want to make the disclaimer that I'm not a physicist, um, and the arguments I will be presenting will rely heavily on philosophical evidence. While I will be using the scientific evidence wherever possible, and however much I know it, okay? Um, sometimes I do wish uh, that I majored in physics, but you know, if I majored in physics, I'd probably broke. Um, so, so uh, you know, always chase the money, guys. Okay, that's the lesson from this podcast. Always chase the money. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Okay, follow your dreams. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that either. Okay, worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, and, and, and he'll make you successful. 
Okay, so let's let's get back to seriousness. Let's speak about evidence. Let me first come out and you know lay out my cards, all the assumptions that I will be making before I go on and 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 present the rest of the arguments to you. If you disagree with these assumptions, then you know I can justify them for you, but this is not the time and place to do so. Okay, that's another discussion. Now, I'm going to try my best not to obfuscate using terminology. But at the same time, I need to go into some depth. So if you feel as if I'm using way too much terminology, you know, just ignore that section. Okay, the, 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 the gist of the argument is very basic. Okay, even, even a two-year-old could understand it. So there are things that I'm leaving out also. Okay, because a topic like this for a thorough, in-depth defense requires books, okay? It requires books, it requires a very detailed knowledge of physics in order to even critique some of the physical models. This podcast is a little different. Um, I would never do a podcast uh, without the permission of my teachers about a religious topic. So I'm not a qualified person in Aqidah, in, you know, Islamic theology or anything like that, okay? The field that we're talking about today is a little bit different. It's something called natural theology. Natural theology is the effort to prove the existence of a god, uh, you know, the Abrahamic god specifically, uh, a first principle, a first cause of the universe, through the use of rational and scientific tools, without the use of scripture. Okay, so so that's sort of the field that we're talking about. And we're also talking about philosophy. All right? And philosophy is that art of trying to discover reality using uh, your intellect, okay, without the aid of revelation. And also science. And science is the method by which we try to disco- uh, um, describe reality in an effort to predict it. Okay, that's that's what science is. That's what your equations do. So that's what we're going to be uh, using today. Um, so let's get into it. I believe that truth exists. I'm I'm very simple-minded that way. I define truth the same way that the scholars of our tradition have defined it. Okay, the same way that Aristotle have defined it. Uh, and and you can you can tell the brilliance of a writer by the succinctness with which he conveys profound ideas, okay? Uh, So he says here, uh, you know, truth is a judgment that matches up with reality. That's all it is. Truth is saying about what is, that it is, and saying about what is not, that it is not. Now that famous definition from Aristotle. You know, um... And, and we like to keep it simple, okay? Uh, I believe intuition is fine, okay? I will accept what human beings have always accepted as true and have intuitively believed unless I'm presented with a huge amount of evidence pointing to the opposite direction. And I also think logical arguments count as evidence. And not everything that is true can be tested in a lab or be seen. I think that's pretty much commonsensical view, uh, you know? It's, it's a commonsensical view um, unless you're a materialist, you know, and 
And if you're a materialist, uh, you're you're a loser, buddy. I don't know what to say. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, uh, we're open-minded here, and uh, you could be a materialist if you want. But nobody's really a materialist in real life, right? Nobody's really a materialist in real life. We still love, we still trust, we still hate, and we still are sort of pushed around by uh, forces that we can't quantify. Um, I also think logical arguments can point, uh, not definitively prove, but point to metaphysical truths. Uh, what is metaphysics? It's the study of reality itself. Physics is the study of how reality works. So, for example, questions in metaphysics are like, uh, do individual objects exist? Okay? Does an I exist? Does a you exist? Uh, does a they exist? Okay? Uh, just, does gender exist? Um, actually, no, that's not a metaphysical question. But physics will be like, you know, what's the physical relationship between this object and that object? How can I write an equation for it in order to predict um, uh, how they will work together under certain circumstances? And finally, I think most logical arguments for God's existence uh, are trying to increase your stock of evidence. But they're not a proof like in mathematics, okay, where there's absolutely no disagreement over a valid proof. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of arguing to the best possible explanation and, and, and the belief which is most reasonable, okay? Um, and you might wonder, okay, why aren't arguments for God's existence um, uh, similar to a mathematical proof? Well, because you have people that are known as skeptics, and they will wiggle out, as I will show you, they will wiggle out wherever um, it's possible to wiggle out, Okay? So that's really the reason, and also because the terms that we use in arguments for, for God's existence can be misinterpreted, uh, can sometimes be ambiguous, okay? But if you write a mathematical proof, you know, nothing's ambiguous in a mathematical proof, okay? So, so um, yeah, that's the situation. Um, so I'm arguing to the best possible explanation. Um, you know, you can believe anything you want. Okay, you can believe, I mean, anything's possible, anything's possible, but there are certain things that are more reasonable, okay, and there are certain things that are true as of now. You know, it's, it's certainly possible that you're actually living in a simulation run by aliens from another universe, but who cares, you know, you're alive, doesn't matter. It's possible that I could weigh 150 pounds and be super ripped, okay, and 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 not lose stamina after stamina after two after two, after two sets, okay. That's that's the reality, and um, you know we don't deal with possibilities here. Uh, at least logical arguments don't. Um, for God's existence, we're arguing to the best possible explanation. Okay, so now that we've got that out of the way, let's look at the first topic that was brought up in the last podcast, the omnipotence paradox. These types of arguments try to derive a reductio ad absurdum by looking at the classical attributes of the Abrahamic God, you know, things like all-powerful, all-loving, all-merciful, all-just, and uh, so on. Now, uh, 
a, a reductio ad absurdum just means you try to show that holding a certain idea leads to absurdity. Okay, so here we go. Now, Dawkins and his online murids, okay, pose this question for a believer in an all-powerful God uh, all the time, as if it's somehow a, a special question, as if it's somehow a sophisticated question. Um, omnipotence means all-powerful. So the question goes, if God can do anything, can he make a stone even he can't lift? Uh, so, so let's look at this question, and let's treat it with some seriousness, and show you why... Um, the question doesn't make sense, and it's it's uh, it's actually um, an example of contradictory premises. Okay, um, so let's look at this question. Firstly, what do we mean by anything in this question? Do you mean anything that can be represented in a sentence or a phrase? So, you know, <laughs> something like square triangle. Is a square triangle a thing just because I can write those two words next to each other? Well, obviously not. Uh, that's not a thing. If I say England is my city, you would look at me weird. I put those words together in a sentence, but they don't mean anything useful. Eng England is not the name of a city. So no theist says that God can do anything put into a sentence. No classical theist has ever claimed that. Um, and I would like for you to find, I mean, I guess probably Descartes, okay? Uh, but Descartes wasn't a classical theist by any definition. I mean, Descartes thought that, uh, for example, if, if God wanted 2 plus 2 to be equal to 5, he could do that, okay? Um, so, I mean, Descartes was, you know, Descartes was uh, smoking something, I don't know. But, uh, but no classical theist, especially not the Islamic, um, uh, Islamic scholars of Aqidah, uh, the mutakallimun, the ulama, I mean, none of these people have ever held to this idea that God can do anything uh, put into a sentence. Now, um, so, so the question is, um, you're saying, okay, you know, you're limiting God's power, okay? But no, I mean, let's look at it, let's look at it a little closely, we say that God can do all possible things, okay? We say that God can do all possible things. Things that are impossible do not fall under omnipotence. And now you might say, well, I can put it, you know, I can put an impossible, supposedly impossible thing into a sentence, you know, so why can't God do it? If I can put it into a sentence, it should be possible. But no, that's not right. Um, uh, you know, the fact that you can put something incoherent into a sentence is more to do with the ambiguous nature of human language and the deficiency of human language to capture reality than it has to do with God, okay? Um, if I give you a random collection of words, uh, Drake, plan, sweater, jacket, I mean, I guess you could derive some meaning from that, but I mean, I didn't intend any meaning at all, okay? So there's no meaning to it. So um, let's look at it from uh, another angle and uh, see why this question is incoherent. Now one might say, well, uh, uh, creating an unliftable stone is not in the category of the impossible because I can find a stone that I can't lift. Uh, therefore, it's a possible action that uh, 
that could possibly be done by God as well? Well, I think the questioner is confused uh, in making unliftableness a property of a stone. Unliftableness is not a property of a stone in the same way that, let's say, the, the weight, the hardness, um, you know, the, the, the element that composed the stone are. Uh, unliftableness is a relationship between the stone and uh, the lifter, okay? So the reason that uh, it's possible for you to find an unliftable stone and it's impossible for an omnipotent being is because the relationship is completely different, okay? So that's not a good objection. So, uh, again, we uh, defined the... Uh, we defined omnipotence as the capacity to do all possible things. So let's give a uh, a much more detailed understanding of what this means and how it relates to the stone question. So look at this. Pay attention. Okay, you might miss out. If you have x number of stones of various weights, okay, of all sizes, all weights, all possible weights. By the definition of omnipotence, all of them can be lifted by an omnipotent being. He must be able to lift all stones. That's how we've defined it. That's from the definition. So, the set of stones that an omnipotent being cannot lift is empty. Meaning, a set is a collection of things, okay? Uh, just, just a quick review. A set is a collection of things the set of unliftable stones for an omnipotent being, for an all-powerful being, is zero. So the questioner is asking, why cannot an omnipotent being lift a stone from an empty set of unliftable stones? Why can an omnipotent being not lift a stone that's not even there? Okay, so this is why uh, the question is doubly incoherent. Finally, uh, let's summarize it. The question is basically asking this. Can a being that is all-powerful not do something? Do you see the problem? It's a c conflict of definitions. It's like asking, can a figure with three sides be a figure with four sides? Okay, so you can see how incoherent this is. Finally, I'll leave the topic here. Uh, but I'll say in closing that the question tries to pass off a perfection as a defect. The ability to do all things is a perfection. It's not a defect. You know, not, you know, uh, it be, you know uh, having it be impossible to an omnipotent being to create an unliftable stone, this isn't a fault. This is actually a perfection. It's like claiming that a perfect student who got every question right on his exam is not really perfect because uh, he wasn't successful in failing the exam. So, you know, this is this is um, the incoherence that the question uh, leads us to. So this paradox turns out not really to be a paradox and not really a serious question worth considering at all. Uh, there's no incoherence in the idea of an omnipotent being, and no serious philosopher or theologian takes this question seriously anyway. Um, so I hope that was a you know, enough detail for that question. It was much more detailed than it deserved, to be honest with you. So now let's look at the problem of evil. 
So, let's briefly mention a few things about the problem of evil because it's uh, a, a an entirely huge topic by itself. But I just wanted to mention some things in passing uh, that uh, the listener might find interesting. Um, the problem of evil isn't just one argument. There are different varieties of this argument. So one of the flavors of this argument is called the logical problem of evil. It basically says that an all-good God and the existence of evil are not at all compatible. There's a logical contradiction, basically. Okay. So let's quickly look at that. Uh, as for the other varieties, uh, they take a ton of time to discuss, uh, and I've also not done my homework for that, and uh, it's not the topic of this podcast anyway. Um, but let's look at the logical problem of evil and try to deal with that. So the logical problem of evil is not really a problem anymore. And it's not a strong argument against God, because, again, remember what it was trying to do. It was trying to show that the existence of an all-good God is in contradiction, irresolvable, irreconcilable contradiction with the existence of evil in the world, any type of evil. So it makes a huge claim. Now, the reason that the argument fails and why it's not taken seriously anymore is because the theist, all he has to do or she has to do in order to respond to this argument and provide an adequate defense is to give a list of possible reasons why an all-good God, all God would allow evil in the world. So the possibility of there being any type of reasons at all makes the supposed contradiction go away. And the reason for this is because a contradiction is an irreconcilable um, uh, statement, such as, this man is a married bachelor. Um, uh, if we take the univocal meaning, okay, if we just take the literal meaning of what we just read, this man is a married bachelor, there's just no way to reconcile that sentence into any type of meaningful sentence. It doesn't make sense. Therefore, this is a contradiction. Okay? So, the logical problem of evil is gone, but now there are other arguments from evil, which uh, don't try to really prove a contradiction, but they're more psychological. And I'll be honest with you, the, um, the psychological component of the problem of evil it's probably the only argument in the arsenal of unbelief. It's probably the only good argument. It's probably the only strong argument that the arsenal of unbelief um, holds. And it can disturb us. You know, the problem of evil is not so difficult because it's so... Um, it, there's, there's a logical difficulty, but rather because it's so tough to be neutral or impartial when discussing it. You know, we're no longer arguing about abstractions, sitting in our comfy chairs in the ivory towers, sipping tea and so on, right? We're now getting way too personal, way too close to real life, and all of our biases and experience, experiences bleed, you know, into sort of our, the the side that we take on this issue. For me personally, I can't say anything more about the problem of evil, except that, you know, even if we discuss that problem at length, there are certain truths about the world 
that are just not um, arrived at, uh, you know, where we don't re really get the yaqeen through simply logical reasoning. Okay? Um, we live life, we love, hate, trust, uh, and exist in a way that sometimes defi you know, defies any classification or method. The closer we get to real life, the more our intuitions kick in. Uh, and in that regard, I think psychologically satisfactory answers to the problem of evil is sometimes unique to each individual and what they have gone through. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, that's all I have to say about that. And uh, we can speak about the problem of evil in more detail uh, some other time. But let's now get back to the main topic of our discussion, the meat of this podcast, um, and what we started the podcast with, the beginning of the universe, and the Kalam cosmological argument. Uh, you know, and I think, you know, uh, I hope what something that you will take away from this podcast is that people who believe in God are not simple, just simpletons, you know, are not, they're not just accepting a flying spaghetti monster or that roams around the sky. Um, so, so let's get into it. Uh, but before I begin, I want to give a heartfelt shout out to my friend and teacher, Ikramul Islam, for spending hours explaining to me many philosophical ideas related to the Kalam. Um, so, so with that, let's now begin. We're in the thick of it. Bismillah. So, the Kalam cosmological argument, what is it? It's a set of two premises that lead to a conclusion. Here are the two premises, and you might be surprised by their simplicity. Premise, premise number one, everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. Premise number two, the universe began to exist. Therefore, the inevitable conclusion is that the universe as a cause for its existence. Now, this appears to be almost commonsensical, almost laughably so. Of course anything that begins to exist has a cause. Of course physics tells us that the universe began to exist. But does it? You know? Let's not take anything for granted. Let's defend these premises with uh, as much rigor as we possibly can muster. Hidden in these two premises of our argument are a huge number of assumptions that need to be defended about reality. And this is where we get into the details and into the deep end. The skeptic takes nothing for granted. The skeptic's main assumption is that we come into the world tabula rasa as a completely blank slate and we have no warrant to believe in anything whatsoever. Um, now to the regular person this seems odd. And exactly, it is. Um, but let's let's take that approach and let's try to defend these uh, premises against the skeptic's objection. So, let's see why we would want to believe in the first premise. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. So, let's look at that first premise. Let's start with defending that premise and talking about what we mean when we say that a thing begins to exist. 
What do we mean by that? What we mean is that a thing has a finite duration of its existence. It didn't exist forever. That's all we mean when we say that a thing began to exist. What we are saying is that the thing has a finitude attached to it. That the thing came into being at a particular point and will perhaps go out of being at a particular point. So that's what it means. Anything that begins to exist, it means that it has a finite duration of its existence. Your coffee began to exist at 8 a.m. when you brewed it. Now it no longer does, since it was converted probably to urine and energy and, um, and probably Java code uh, for the programmers that are listening to this. The coffee existed for a finite duration. Here's another way of saying it. X begins to exist if and only if X comes into being at time T, some moment in time, okay? Some moment in time. But it's not necessary that it be in time, as we will see uh, later on. I came into existence, for example, at a specific day. Now, why are we justified in believing this common-sense fact about causality to be true? And by the way, the first premise is really another way of stating the law of causality, that, you know, causality is real. So why are we justified in believing in causality? Uh, not only because we have empirical evidence for it, because the empirical evidence for it is obviously overwhelming. We would not be able to even think if causality did not exist. Uh, you would not be able to listen to this podcast. You would not be able to uh, uh, do science. Your your body would start falling apart if if there if there's no causality. Um, uh, so uh, so um, uh, you know um, we have tremendous evidence for it. Um, but we don't want to use just the observable evidence. We want to give a metaphysical argument. Okay, and metaphysics is, as I said, the study, the, 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 the science of reality. Okay, we are trying to say that causality is a real feature of reality, just as numbers are. Okay, you know, just as consciousness is. So, causality. Is not simply something we can arrive at through a type of inductive argument where you look at things within the world, see that they have causes, and then you make a general law saying that anything comes into being must have a cause. No, this is not what we're doing, okay? The existence of causality is something that can be demonstrated by understanding one statement, okay? That something cannot come from nothing. Something cannot come into being from non-being. Okay, this is the argument that we're making for why causality is an established fact of reality, that it applies to the universe, that it applies to anything outside of universes, gods, whatever. Okay? Because something cannot come into being out of nothing. Why do we say that something cannot come at all uh, from nothing? So let's explore that a little more. Remember, we're not taking anything for granted. So let's ask the first question. What do we mean by nothing here? Do we mean uh, 
empty space, you know, nothing. Uh, do I mean my bank account? Because there's nothing in there. Well, you know, I'm lying, but that was an attempt at a joke. Do we mean that thin padding in your thermos flask called a vacuum? No. Um, what we mean by nothing is the complete absence of all things, all properties, the complete negation of all things, all properties, all potentialities. Okay? This is what we mean by nothing. This is the metaphysical, the philosophical definition of nothing. Not the physicist's definition, not the scientist's definition, not the common sense definition, if you will, but the philosophical definition. Complete negation of all things. If space, time, matter, and the quantum world is all there is, then imagine just deleted, you know, deleting all of it. You don't even have empty space. You have complete and utter nothing. Negation of all potentials. Okay. So... That sort of makes sense, right? Something cannot come from nothing. And we gave an argument why that's true. And uh, because nothing has no potentials. So if something has no potentials, how can something come out of it? Uh, and then we said, this supports our first premise, that anything that begins to exist has a cause of its existence. Okay, so let me play devil's advocate. Objection. Virtual particles in quantum physics spring out of being, out of nothing. Is that true? Yeah, this is a popular objection by even philosophers and scientists, which I just find surprising, uh, that they, sh you know, they should know better because they study these things in a little bit more depth. Um, um, you know, so-called virtual particles pop into being out of nothing. Uh, no, they don't. They come from a sea of quantum fluctuations. Quantum fluctuations, by definition, has potentialities. Namely, the potential to give birth to virtual particles. It is not nothing. Nothing has no potentials. Okay? And, and by the way, don't, don't try to be clever. Okay? You know, some, some, people, some people try to be clever. And, and uh, you know, they ask the question, Oh, you are... Is nothing something? Because you're giving it properties. You're giving it at least one property, the property that it has no properties, right? Now, if that sounds ridiculous to you, it's because it is, okay? We're not giving nothing a property. We're saying that it's the negation of all properties. It's not a thing. Okay, enough of that. So, you know, virtual particles don't pop into being out of nothing. Okay, they come from quantum fluctuations. They come from uh, a, a sphere of activity that we can detail with our equations. We can, you know, um, so, uh, you know, nothing, you know, it's not nothing. I want to make that clear. Okay, something cannot come from nothing. And if one is not convinced of this, then, I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. You know, I don't know what else to tell you to make you convinced of this fact. That something cannot come from nothing. If one wants to reject this premise, then one has to bring a tremendous amount of proof to support their argument. It's not simply enough to say, why not? It's not simply enough to, you know, raise an objection. Because we can't even think of an example coming into being out of absolutely nothing. Okay, so 
that's the first objection. Supposedly, virtual particles pop into existence out of nothing. Objection number two. Okay? We can actually think of examples of things coming into being out of nothing. So says the skeptic. And a famous example from uh, a detractor uh, that they like to use is one by Hume, David Hume, the uh, the probably the probably the the, the strongest skeptic who've, who've ever lived. Right? Dude didn't even believe in causality. Um, but um, well, I mean, he did for practical purposes. But if you read his books, um, yeah. So Hume says. You can imagine something popping into existence out of nothing. Imagine you're sitting in a room and a ball pops into you, uh, onto your lap, out of nothing, out of thin air. Hume says that this is somehow an example of a thing coming into being out of nothing. And because you can think about it, it's possible. Now, is that true? Firstly, let's say that a rabbit suddenly appears on your lap as you are listening to this podcast. What's your reaction? Do you say, well, Hume says rabbits happen, so I guess it's no big deal? Or do you immediately try looking for a cause? Perhaps it snuck in when you weren't paying attention. Perhaps someone placed it there. Perhaps it fell through the room so fast that, you know, the roof, sorry, so fast that you didn't see it. If you find no material cause or no agent putting the rabbit there, then you don't simply say rabbits happen, you know? If you find no material cause, no you know, agent that caused the event, you look for a psychological cause. Have you been watching too many videos of rabbits so you're hallucinating now? Is it possible that this is a hologram someone's projecting onto your lap somehow and you're tricked by the illusion? Geez, uh, what else could it be? Well, you can't find any explanation and... At the last resort, you throw up your hands and, and you invoke God and you say it's a miracle. But you don't say rabbits happen. So, uh, you know, the example that Hume gives is not a good example because it's vague. Um, there could be a, a number of reasons why a ball could suddenly pop into your room, okay, out of thin air. But it doesn't mean that it comes into being out of nothing. Remember, we said that nothing is the absence of potentials. And, um, uh, you know, there's no good reason to suppose that the ball comes into existence out of nothing. And here's a further objection, okay? If things could possibly come into existence out of nothing, okay, if, if this is somehow not intuitive, that, you know, why doesn't anything come into existence out of nothing? Why don't horses come into existence out of nothing? Why, uh, why, um, why doesn't my future wife pop into existence out of nothing? Why doesn't um, uh, the car that I wanted suddenly pop into existence out of nothing when I, uh, when I wake up tomorrow and uh, go out the door? You know, why is it only universes that pop into existence out of nothing? Why why not anything? Why not everything? You know, it, I feel as if this is a case of special pleading on the part of the detractor uh, to avoid the inevitable conclusion of this argument. 
we can't even construct an example uh, or imagine any scenario in which something could come into being uncaused. So, so we don't have any good reason for denying premise number one, that anything that begins to exist uh, must have a cause for its existence. Now, uh, the detractor can be even more clever. Here's another objection. You might say, well, things don't really begin to exist, uh, uh, you know, but they're simply rearrangements of previously existing things. For example, when the carpenter makes the chair, he's not giving being to the chair. The chair is not coming to being out of nothing. He's just taking already existing wood and reshaping it in the form of a chair. So nothing really begins to exist in the sense that we mean. Um, so let's look at this. Uh, this is a rather odd view. Um, because it's a little subtle, but you'll notice, and once again, obviously, it comes from Hume. Um, uh, you know, uh, just as a side note, it's really odd how people who object to these types of arguments against the existence of God just pick and choose, sort of, they sort of uh, argument shop, like people fatwa shop, okay? They're not internally consistent with their principles. If you're going to use some of Hume's basic premises about reality, then you are a complete skeptic, and you should at least admit that. This is why, you know, someone like, um, someone like uh, Professor Milliken, I, uh, you know, even though he's an atheist, at least I respect him for saying that you know, he's a complete skeptic. At least I know where he's at. Uh, but people pretend as if uh, they're being rational uh, by picking and choosing philosophical ideas when it suits them uh, and not committing to anything. Um, this is, I don't know, that, uh, it's, that's very disturbing to me. But anyway, let's look at this objection. Nothing really begins to exist. Everything is just a reshaping of something else. Um, what does this mean? Let's look at it closely. It means that I never began to exist. Okay? Everything's a rearrangement of other things. Therefore... I never began to exist, since the detractor is saying that nothing really begins to exist. This leaves us with two possibilities. I have always existed, number one, or I don't exist. Okay, there are no third possibilities. Now, let's look at the, let's look at the idea that I don't exist, alright? If someone tells me that they don't exist, is there really a point in replying to them, since the statement came from a non-existent thing. So that statement itself doesn't exist. So it doesn't need to be replied to. There's a funny story um, that I've once heard. Uh, it's, it's really funny, actually. Um, so a student was reading Descartes, um, you know, freshman philosophy student was reading Descartes, and you know he was just enamored uh, by this new, uh, these new ideas. And he was reading all night long, and he bursts into his philosophy professor's room in the morning, and and he says with great distress, he says, "Professor, I found out that I don't exist." <laughs> and the and the philosophy professor replies, "Who is asking?" Okay, I'll leave you. I'll leave that to you to figure out. Um, 
So you can rewind and listen to that joke again uh, if you get it. If you don't get it, leave a comment. Okay. Uh, like, share, subscribe. All right. Okay, so, so it's quite clear that um, I exist, okay? It's quite clear that I exist. Now, what about the idea that I've always existed? I mean, is, is that true? Where was I when the Phillies won the Super Bowl? <laughs> uh, um, okay, that was my attempt at a joke. Uh, no offense to the to the Eagles. I like the Eagles. I like the Phillies. Uh, I have a Philly sweatshirt, by the way. Uh, I meant to say, where was I when the Phillies won the the World Series? Um, where was I during the Great Depression, during World War II, during the Jurassic Age, during uh, the Napoleonic Wars, during when the Prophet was giving his message? You know, if I've always existed, uh, you know, where was I? So. Uh, this is these this uh, this objection that nothing really begins to exist is just confusing it it doesn't really make much sense um and you see youtube atheists using this all the time as if it's some sort of profound idea not realizing that it's it's a type of extreme human skepticism that that just leaves you on absolutely no footing for any type of idea so the confusion with this objection is that the detractor is confusing the stuff a thing is made of with the thing itself, okay? One of my assumptions, and an assumption of every regular human being, is that individual objects exist. There is an I, there is a you, there is a house, there is a bus, there are essences, that thing which makes a particular object different from other objects, and that thing which defines that object. The, 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 the dogness of the dog is what defines the dog. The dog is simply not the rearrangement of atoms that make it up. Okay, There's also an essence to the dog. And when a new dog is born, an essence comes into existence. An essence begins to exist. And if the detractor is to reject this, then what the detractor is saying, he's sort of adopting this idea of a mereological nihilism, which says that there's no individuality, no particular objects, no you, no I, simply stuff that objects are made of. Um, you know, and if the detractor wants to believe this, then he should follow through. He should follow through. He should be consistent with the supposed truths that he's found. Okay? Instead of trying to wiggle out of accepting, you know, uh, wiggle out of uh, accepting this argument, the conclusion of this argument. So, anyway, whatever begins to exist must have a cause. Finally, let's look at one of the last objections to this premise. Uh, it's sometimes accused of equivocating. Now, equivocation is when you use one word in two different senses, okay? And you sort of sneak in the meaning um, when the person's not paying attention. So, uh, and, and this is really silly because even philosophers uh, don't, don't understand that the Kalam is not equivocating. This accusation comes from people who, again, accept unknowingly certain assumptions. 
The word cause in the argument does not mean a material cause. The material cause of a thing, okay, just a little review, the material cause of a thing, let's say a tennis ball, is the leather which composes it. We're not saying that everything that begins to exist has a material cause. Rather, what we have, you know, we have a more inclusive view of causation. Everything that begins to exist must, must have, at the very least, an efficient cause or some sufficient reason for it coming into being. So what is an efficient cause? An efficient cause of a thing is the agent that creates the effect in the thing. And the agent is not necessarily the same as the thing it is affecting upon. Okay, that's a mouthful. So, so here's an example. Cristiano Ronaldo scored against Juventus. Here, Cristiano Ronaldo is doing the scoring. He is the efficient cause of the ball flying into the top right corner. Okay, and Ronaldo is not necessarily the type of the ball. This broader view of causation is what we mean by cause. Now, the detractor might have made, you know, obviously object because they're, they're, uh, they're being skeptical again. They'll say, okay, fine. Efficient causes exist. Okay. Efficient causes um, exist. But when they do exist, they are always somehow in relationship with a material cause. So you can't say that the universe had a cause because there's no material before the universe. Wait a minute. Um, the detractor is assuming that somehow there's an essential relationship between an efficient cause and a material cause all the time. Just because you see a material cause, wherever there's an efficient cause, in the world, in your experience, does not, it does not logically follow that, that you, can, you cannot have an efficient cause without a material cause. Um, and, you know, the, 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 um, this idea that efficient causes are always sort of supported by material substrates. Huh? I mean, is that, is that true? Consider this. A human, look at this argument, okay? A human is a rational animal. Socrates is a human. Therefore, Socrates is a rational animal. The rules of logical syllogisms causes the result. Okay? Each proposition... When, you when the logical rules of syllogism operate with these propositions, you get the result. But is the truth of this argument somehow bound to a human being existing in reality? You know? Is, is it true that, you know, if, if human beings did not exist, that somehow this argument would be false? You know? And again, I want to review the argument. A human is a rational animal. Socrates is a human, therefore, Socrates is a rational animal. Would this argument be false if no human existed? Okay? Obviously not. But again, I'm, we're getting way too deep into it because we're sort of discussing the nature of propositions here. Um, but let's respond to this objection simply. Just because we see efficient causes somehow paired up with material causes 
doesn't mean efficient causes cannot exist without material causes. Where is the warrant for that? You know? You can't simply make something up just to wiggle yourself out of the conclusions of this argument. In fact, it is more absurd to say that something can come into being uncaused from nothing, just pop into being from no potentiality, than it is to say that something comes into being from an efficient cause, but no material cause. Right? I'm more justified in my belief to say, okay, there was no material before the universe, when there's no space, there's no time, there's no matter, but there was an efficient cause. There was an agent that caused the universe. I'm more justified in saying that than someone saying, oh, there's no such thing as efficient causes, there's only material causes, and the universe just popped into being out of nothing. Okay? So, you know, this again, this objection is not a strong one. All in all, I, I personally think that the first premise is... It's secured. Uh, how can it not be, right? Thousands and thousands of years of scientific endeavor and, and the search for knowledge has been based on that principle, that things just don't happen, and there's a sufficient reason for their happening. Uh, unless the detractor can give some overwhelming evidence to sway us away from such an obvious truth about reality, th then I think we are secure in holding to this fact that everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. Okay, cool. That's the first premise defended as um, in-depth as a podcast would allow me. Now, let's go on to the second premise, and this is the most legwork that we have to do on this podcast, so uh, bear with me. The second premise says that the universe began to exist. This is the most controversial of the premises in this argument. Now, the interesting thing with this argument is that it can be defended from two angles, both from a scientific angle and a philosophical angle. Now, I want to make clear that this statement, the universe began to exist, is a neutral statement. You know, that can be, it's, it's verifiable by scientific inquiry. I'm not trying to sneak in religion here. You know, I'm not trying to sort of like sneak in a verse of the Quran or sneak in a, you know, Genesis um, uh, verse 1. Uh, you know, that's not what I'm trying to do. You can find this statement in any college textbook, okay? In fact, I want to point out that arguments for God's existence are not dependent on this premise at all, okay? The Kalam cosmological argument just so happens to use this premise, Okay? But arguments for God's existence are not entirely dependent on this premise. There are tons of other arguments for God's existence that don't use this premise. Um, um, okay. So, so uh, we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that we want to prove the truth that the universe began to exist because of the recent discoveries in physics. There's now evidence that we can point to to show that our universe existed for approximately 13.7 uh, billion years. Um, uh, you can check that out. So let's continue our train of thought the way we began, from the start of the podcast, uh, and, and look at the scientific justification for believing in a finite universe.
When the standard model was first proposed, there was a backlash against it from the physics community. How could they believe that the universe had an absolute beginning out of nothing, ex nihilo? It sounded too much like the Bible. It sounded too much like uh, the Quran, you know, uh, the Torah. Uh, you know, it, it sounded too much, it's, it sounded too religious. Um, uh, to the scientists who were, who were obsessed with causality, okay, the Big Bang obviously required a Big Banger. This conclusion was disturbing <laughs> for a scientific community that was steeped in materialism and naturalism. So what started happening is that alternatives to the standard model started showing up. Um, legendary physicist uh, Fred Hoyle, okay, was almost a militant atheist, uh, was one of the first to propose a successful uh, model of the universe, even though it was ludicrous, okay, it was later abandoned. And I want to just uh, show you this, um, uh, tell you about this, to, to show you that there are other models of the universe and how scientists sort of try to run away from this idea that the universe had a beginning. The steady state model uh, by Fred Hoyle tried to resolve the contradiction between an expanding universe and an eternal one. Hoyle suggested that the universe was homogeneous and isotrophic. Those are big words. What they mean is that the universe is overall the same in all places and all directions, respectively. Okay? The universe was expanding since eternity, like a sheet of rubber. As the universe expanded, new space-time stuff pops into being from the pre-eternal vacuum to fill the gaps left by the expansion. In this way, the universe expands but retains the same density into eternity. If you wind the clock back, the extra material of the universe vanishes and you still arrive at the same density. Now, Hoyle's theory was taken up and defended by opponents of the standard model, not because it had any experimental basis or proof. It didn't. There was no proof for it but because it avoided the problem of a beginning to the universe, which they did not want to accept. But somebody popped their balloon because when Hubble proved that an expanding universe was, you know, experimentally verifiable, when he discovered red-shifted light from distant galaxies to prove that the universe was expanding, this steady-state theory was no longer tenable. And it was also discovered that the light elements, like helium, needed tremendous and extreme conditions of the early universe, of the Big Bang, in order to come into existence. And so physicists uh, had verified uh, the standard model's predictions, and the steady-state theory was thrown into the trash. Now, there are other models of the universe, things like oscillating models, things like quantum fluctuation models, uh, all these sorts of things, and, uh, you know, I don't want to sort of go too much in depth into them. Some of them I know about, some of them I don't. Um, but what I'm trying to speak of is the broad sort of scientific consensus that, that people have about uh, the universe today. Um, but just a quick gloss over oscillating models, because this is a popular objection that people like to give against the Kalam, right? Uh, okay, the universe did have a cause, but how do you know it wasn't a previous state of the universe, you know? Maybe the universe is like an accordion, you know, folding in, folding out, folding in, folding out, since eternity. 
You know, maybe there's these cycles of reincarnation, like the Hindus believe. What Hawking and Penrose proved in their theorems was that even for an oscillating model, a singularity was inevitable. You could not avoid the universe coming into being from that singular, you know, singularity point of the standard model. So, well, oscillating models, no more. That went in the trash as well. So, the broad scientific consensus is that the universe is finite, that it is 13.7 billion years old. Now, Hawking, Stephen Hawking, the, the late Stephen Hawking, I should say, um, posed a challenge in the grand design. Um, so, um, it seems that we can't avoid the idea of a finite universe uh, taking into account modern physics and cosmology. Our best experimental evidence points us in this direction. So, um, what Hawking did is that he investigated this question in a lot of depth. Okay? And, um, and before, you know, before I talk about Hawking, I just want to say that it just seems to me that scientists will craft fantastic models of the universe, things like the multiverse uh, hypothesis that have no proof, uh, to just to avoid a beginning to the universe. One wonders if they're really pursuing such an effort because they're being objective. Okay? I don't deny that there could be possible, possibly different models uh, for the beginning of the universe. That's fine. But are they pursuing it because they're being objective or because they want to avoid the obvious conclusion? Is there anxiety in um, this insistence of different models? Allahu alam. I don't know. As of today, however, the Borduth-Vilenkin theorem is widely accepted, and it supports the idea for an absolute beginning of the universe. Now, back to Hawking. In his book, The Grand Design, he tries to present an updated version of his cosmological model of the universe. Uh, now, what he says is, okay, There's uh, I found a way to avoid the cosmic singularity. Imagine the standard model, you know, this, this idea of the Big Bang, okay? Um, it's like a cone, okay? The, the bottom of the cone is the singularity. That's the beginning of the universe, and time extends upwards, okay? The, the cone gets bigger. So, what Hawking uh, found a way to do, okay, by using... Um, uh, using unreal numbers in his uh, in his equations, was he sort of rounded off, you know, he sort of rounded off the edge of the cone, uh, something like a Batman shuttlecock. Okay, you've ever seen those Bat Batman cocks, right? So he says, okay, there's no longer a point at which the universe began. Therefore, the universe never began to exist because I've removed the point at which the universe began to exist. Now, uh, Hawking's is not, he, he's not an expert in philosophy, all right? So we shouldn't take his opinion seriously. But, but let's look at this opinion. Hawking's mistake is to suppose that you need a beginning point for something to begin to exist. Remember how we defined beginning to exist previously. We said that something begins to exist if it has a finite lifespan. It doesn't matter if it has a beginning point or a first instant at which it begins to exist. If it is finite in duration. Alright? 
if it is finite in duration, it begins to exist. So that objection uh, isn't that uh, notable. So I think the scientific uh, cause, uh, you know, the scientific consensus and the scientific evidence uh, for the finitude of the universe is quite established. Now, one might ask, um, how does causation work if, if there's no before? Okay, the first point of the universe uh, in the Big Bang, space-time, space-time, matter, everything in reality began to exist. So how can there be a before the universe? Okay, how could God have created the universe effectively? if there was no time before the universe? How could God have existed before the universe? There's, no, there's literally no before. Put simply, isn't causation, by definition, temporal? Okay, isn't causation linked with time? Right? So how can we say that God created the universe if time began to exist at, you know, at the first instant of the universe? How could he have caused an effect, right, if he's not in time? So let's look at this. The assumption is that causation is somehow limited to time, meaning that the cause always precedes the effect. Now, the cause of an effect doesn't always need to precede the effect. The cause of an effect can be simultaneous with the effect. Uh, here's an example in real life. We experience examples of simultaneous causation all the time. Uh, an example of this is a ball resting on a foam. While the ball rests on the foam, it is simultaneously causing the depression on the foam. So similarly, God creating the universe is simultaneous with the universe beginning to exist. There's no difficulty, even though such a simultaneous cause might be, uh, you know, it might be difficult to visualize or adequately comprehend. But, uh, you know, I mean, we're talking about the creator of all reality here. And uh, again, simultaneous causation is not incoherent. So it's perfectly fine. Good. So now let's look at the philosophical evidence. We looked at the scientific evidence and we saw that the standard model at the Bortguth-Volenkin uh, theorem, and even Stephen Hawking's own theorems provide evidence for a uh, for a uh, for an absolute beginning to the universe. Now let's look at the philosophical justification. So, is it possible logically that the universe is eternal? that there's been an infinite number of events and moments in time back into the past? I think the scientific evidence against this idea should be enough to suppose not. But let's not suppose anything and continue with the philosophical evidence as to why you cannot have an infinite regress of events back into the past. Now, before I begin, let's go over some terminology. Uh, a set, okay, is a collection of things. We already mentioned sets before. A subset is a set that is contained within another subset. So let's say I have a set of numbers, 1, 2, 3, and 4. The collection containing 1 and 2 is a subset of the original set of 1, 2, 3, and 4. 
Okay, so you can rewind that if you want to listen to that again. Um, uh, but let's keep moving. Cool. Let's get into the meat of the argument. Um, and this part's exciting because uh, the uh, the debate over uh, the absolute beginning of the universe from a philosophical standpoint is what many of our Kalam theologians, people like Imam Ghazali uh, and so on and so forth, Fakhruddin al-Razi and so on, uh, discuss these things. So it's pretty interesting. So, can we have an infinite number of events going back into the past? If not, the first question that comes to mind is, why can we create mathematical rules for talking about infinity if we can if 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 an infinite number of events back into the past is impossible why can't the universe be eternal why can't there be an infinite number of events going back into the past we can imagine it we do mathematics with infinity so the problem here is distinguishing between potential and actual infinities Mathematical infinities are potential infinities. An infinite set might potentially exist in the sense that you keep counting and counting and counting, and you can almost approach it, but the fact of the matter is that in, the, in real life you never will approach. Okay? You will never approach it. Not in real life. But actual infinities, meaning, um, you know, an infinite number of, let's say, goats, just cannot exist, not even in principle, because whenever you show me, say, X number of goats, I can always find one more and add it to your list. We never approach infinity. Finally, let's look at why we can't have an infinite regress back into the past. Consider that there's been an infinite number of days before the day you are listening to this podcast now. Let's say someone were to count down from infinity to reach your current day. Okay? Someone's counting down from infinity. Just imagine that. Well, you can't, but for the purposes of this argument, try. What would he have to do in order to reach your current day? Well, he would have to first reach the day before today. But to reach the day before today, he would have to reach the day before yesterday. But to do that, he would have to reach the day even before that, and so on to infinity. He will never arrive at your day. Why? Because, you know, he can't even begin to start counting down from infinity. I can always give him one more day that he has to first reach, you know, before he reaches your, your day. Another example that might make it a little bit more clear... Uh, imagine you are sitting at zero on the number line and someone just finished counting down from infinity. So this person, you know, has been counting forever and he's just finished counting down from infinity. He goes negative two, negative one, zero. Whew, that took forever. Then you look at him funny and then you say, hey, why didn't you finish counting at one? So, you know, he gets all worked up and he counts one. Then you say, but you could have finished at two. Then he counts to two. But then you say, but he could have finished at three. And then he counts to three. And it just continues like this. He never finishes counting. 
Because for any number n that he could potentially stop at in the real world, you can find one number n plus 1 that will force him to keep counting. So he never reaches infinity in the real world. This is why an actual set of infinite things in the real world is impossible. You cannot actualize an infinite set. The very fact that you exist at this moment, on this very day, you, a single, discrete individual in a point in time, is proof, logical proof, that the universe is finite. Because events cannot extend forever back into the past, as we've just proven. And if it were true that actual infinities could exist, you would have things like, you know, the Hilbert's Hotel Dilemma. And I'll, I'll leave the reader uh, to research that. Um, but basically, you end up, you know, imagine there's this infinite hotel. An infinite hotel that's full. Okay? All the rooms are taken, and it's an infinite hotel. The paradox is that the hotel would have a sign outside of it that says, Hotel is full, but we're still taking guests. Why? Because if a new guest comes in, uh, you, know, you, you know, it's an infinite hotel, so you just move the last guest to another room, okay? And you move the second to last guest to another room, and so on and so forth until you make one more room that's free and you plop the new guest in there. And potentially this supposedly infinitely full room can support an infinite number of guests, new guests. Okay? doesn't make any sense. It's, it's a logical contradiction if this thing existed in the real world. Now, for the mathematicians listening, uh, this is something interesting. Um... If you believe, okay, if, if you actually believe that an infinite set of actual real things can be, you know, can be made real in the real world, okay, so, for example, if somebody says that the universe is eternal, okay, in that claim, the universe is eternal is the idea that there are an infinite number of events within time there's a set of infinite events. So if you believe that an infinite set could be made real in the real world, you are breaking at least one of the two fundamental rules of how sets themselves are defined. Okay? A set is defined such that a subset of a set, by definition, cannot be bigger than the set itself. Okay? For example, um, you know, uh, a part of something cannot be bigger than the whole. That's what it's literally saying. And the second rule is that for mathematical sets, okay, with two equal number of components, they can be aligned one-to-one, -one, okay? One-to-one -one without leaving out any element. And two infinite sets, okay? So imagine the infinite set of the natural numbers. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, all the way to infinity. And then imagine the infinite set between one and two. One, one point one, one point one point uh, two, one point one, you know, so on. The infinite set between one and two, 
can be perfectly aligned with the infinite set between 1 and infinity. But if these sets were real in the real world, I could always misalign them by putting one extra element at, you know, tacking another extra element onto one of the other sets, right? Now, if that's, if that's getting a little too complicated, just know that um, if an infinite number of things could actually be real, then you are breaking the very definition of what a set is, okay? This is called the meta metaphysical triad, meaning you must reject at least one of the options, okay? One of the three options, and the three option is the three options are um, that an infinite number of things can exist, a subset of a set is defined is by definition cannot be bigger than the set itself, and you know the mapping thing that I mentioned, okay? Um, so, so uh, you know, I, I think that um, the idea that an infinite number of past events cannot exist is well supported. It's logically, rigorously defensible. Um, the idea that the universe is eternal is absurd. And um, unless the detractor gives us a tremendous amount of reason to you know, reject this idea, then, you know, we don't need to reject it. It's, remember what I said, uh, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, I'm going to assume that the intuitive understanding of truth is real, is, is good for me, until I am faced with tremendous evidence to the contrary. And, you know, there's no tremendous evidence to the contrary, in my view, for, you know, for supposing that uh, an infinite number of things could actually exist in reality, all right? Just imagine that, you know, if an infinite number of things could actually exist in reality, you would not be able to cross the street, you know? Uh, look up Zeno's paradox, all right? That's all I'll say. So, I think, um, you know, that that was a handful, all right? That was a handful, but uh, let's just do a quick review of what we've discussed so far. Uh, well, you know, if your brain's fried, so was mine when um, my teacher was explaining this to me, uh, Ikram, um, especially the, the part with sets, that fried my brain, okay? Um, but I think we can be secure on the second premise, that the universe did indeed begin to exist. If we accept the two premises, Okay, if we accept that everything that begins to exist has a cause, and that the universe began to exist, then the conclusion is inevitable. The universe must have a cause for its existence. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. It doesn't matter if you, you know, disagree with the conclusion. If you accept those two premises, then the conclusion follows. Okay, so again, here's a review of the premises. Everything that begins to exist has a cause, and the proof of this is that something cannot come from nothing, and the alternative is simply not proven nor obvious. Uh, if somebody chooses to oppose this premise, he must bring a substantial amount of proof, which he cannot. And the second premise is that the universe began to exist, and we supported this with philosophical arguments, and we mentioned why an infinite regress cannot exist in reality.
And we also supported it with scientific evidence we gave, you know, that verifies a beginning for the universe. So uh, those two double um, streams of evidence gives this premise a secure footing. And so our conclusion is that the universe has a cause for its existence. Now, what is this cause like? It cannot be bound by time. It cannot be bound by space. It cannot be bound by matter, as it is the creator of all three. It is enormously powerful, since it brought the universe into being. It is timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and all-powerful. Does that sound familiar to you? It, it sounds familiar to me. That's, that's what we call God. That is what we call God. Not Zeus. Not Hubal. Not Lat. You know? Not Thor. You know? Not, not the flying spaghetti monster. Not the, the, the white guy with the, the grandpa with the beard you see on Simpsons sitting in the clouds. No, um, he is timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and all-powerful. So, before we end, I want to say a few more things uh, about this argument um, and some of the difficulties associated with it. Um, now, even though I presented a case for this argument, I want to mention some caveats, okay? I don't personally think this is the strongest argument for the existence of God. I know, uh, I was speaking so passionately about it, but, but it's not because there's some logical problem or because there's a lack of evidence. No, it's a fantastic argument for an ordinary human being who's not a philosopher. But for a rigorous defense of this argument, uh, you know, you have to make a lot of metaphysical commitments, okay? For example, the argument rests on the idea that you cannot have an infinite set of things actually existing in reality. This requires some serious legwork to prove conclusively, as we've just done. But, you know, I'm sure many of you will be replaying this podcast just to figure out what I just said in that part of the podcast. It's not at all obvious of how to defend that premise. Um, but even then, you're still left with a metaphysical triad of possibilities, and the skeptic can sort of wiggle out of the argument by, um, by denying the obvious. Now, the argument does not prove a personal God, okay? Uh, it doesn't prove a God who answers prayers, with whom we can have a relationship with, or a God who has a purpose for humanity. It proves a type of deistic God, a distant first cause. But this is not really a problem anyway, because the argument never claimed to prove a personal God. Um, because for the proof, we have a whole host of other equally strong arguments, you know, such as the teleological argument, or the argument for morality, or the argument from desire, or the argument from change, and the list goes on and on. We don't need the KCA, the Kalam cosmological argument, to, you know, prove to us the existence of a personal God. And lastly, the argument presupposes, and I didn't mention this when I was talking about the argument, um, but maybe some of you who've been exposed to this before uh, notice this. Uh, the argument presupposes an a-theory of time. 
The A theory of time says that things exist from moment to moment, that the future does not exist already, and things come into being in time. Now, this is just a common sense view of time that people have. Now, there's another theory of time called the B theory of time that says that all of reality has already happened, okay? And your experience of time is simply an illusion in your consciousness. Um, and if you're a physicist and you find the idea of Einstein's four-dimensional space-time compelling, then you might say that the B theory is right. But there's no consensus on this matter among physicists anyway, and there's no good reason to uh, to accept a four-dimensional space-time when relativity works perfectly fine with an A-theory of time, okay? Again, we don't want to... Why should we accept a fantastic idea over a an intuitive idea if the intuitive idea is backed up by personal experience and more evidence, right? Um, so even if the B-theory of time were true, though, okay, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that if somebody accepts the B-theory of time, suddenly, you know, they can say, oh, God doesn't exist. No, even if the B-theory of time is true, we can argue for God's existence from the argument from contingency of that of a necessary being and the argument from change. Okay, no problem. Finally, uh, I personally like the Kalam argument quite a bit. I love its rigor. I love the questions it evokes in me. You know, my high school love for physics finds a perfect marriage with my love of theology and the KCA. Uh, but I don't personally think it's the best argument simply because of all the complex jargon, you know, that's involved to provide a good defense of the argument, right? I mean, you have you just have to know so much stuff up front to, uh, to, to be given a rigorous defense of it. And, you know, just as a side note... Um, Imagine if Allah revealed the Qur'an in the same language I was talking with in the podcast. Can you imagine turning to that for guidance? Imagine if the Qur'an was a jumble of philosophical jargon, you know, that you would have to read again and again, trying to figure out what it was saying. Who would ever read the Qur'an? You know? Who would ever read the Qur'an if it sounded and 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 sort of stunk of humanity, of human language. And personally, I think this is one of the miracles of the Qur'an, that whenever I read the Arabic of the Qur'an, it sounds nothing like a human being. Even when I read the English, right? just doesn't sound like a human being. But anyway, there's a time and place for everything, and that's a discussion for another time. Uh, the Kalam cosmological argument... Um, is a good argument. It's it's a fantastic argument. Um, it's widely discussed, defended, criticized. You know, it's so popular in academia today. Uh, and once the foolish foolish objections to it are overcome, you know, like we did in this podcast today, it, it makes even the atheist physicist uncomfortable. Okay, and additionally, it fits in perfectly with the amazing advances in cosmology over the last decade, and it really forces us to rethink our assumptions about the universe. You know, because if there is a God, our lives are no longer little, distant, meaningless. Uh, if there is a God, we are suddenly faced with the question of meaning, the question of death, 
the question of why it is that he created us, we're forced to evaluate our temporal existence and a journey towards a relationship with him. Uh, you know, if there's a God, we can, we can no longer be neutral on this moving train towards death. We choose a path either towards him or away from him. And, um, you know, I guess we, we have to pick a path and uh, we have to move. Again, thank you for joining us for this podcast. Uh, this is Naz, Nazmul Hassan. Thank you for listening. I hope you've benefited. Assalamu uh, alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.